Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is the best way to stay abreast of the latest news from China in just a few minutes a day. Our crack editorial team, led by the fearless Yumi Jeremy Goldcorn, sifts through stories from hundreds of sites and distills things down to their must-know essentials. And we include lots of original writing and videos and quizzes and a whole lot more. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from Fordham Law School in Manhattan. Uh, and across the river in Brooklyn is my pal, Jeremy Goldcorn, the one man in America who refuses to go see Black Panther. Mr. Jeremy Goldcorn, why? Do you hate all that is good in the world? No, no, I just hate everything that's popular. <laughs> but Sometimes there's yes. overlap. Sometimes there is overlap, occasionally, very occasionally. But what I would like to become popular is SubChina Access, which is our new membership program. Our current offering gives you a weekly newsletter, access to our Slack instant messaging channel, discounts to our events, um, and we're planning to add a lot more features in the coming weeks, including regular chat sessions on our Slack channel with notable uh, scholars and experts in various subject areas. So I'd love to join you and see you uh, in our community. Yeah, and maybe we're... we're uh managed to get our, our today's guest on as well. Uh, our conversation today comes at a very interesting and sadly, you know, very appropriate time uh, with the announcement just over the weekend of proposed revisions to the Chinese constitution that would remove the two-term limit to the presidency uh, that's been in place since 1982. We're talking today with Carl Minzner, who's professor of law here at Fordham, uh, specializing in Chinese law and politics. Carl is the author most recently of an excellent, excellent slim volume called End of an Era, How China's Authoritarian Revival is Undermining Its Rise. The book asks many of the same hard questions that we've been asking, you know, really since the very inception of this podcast eight years ago. Uh, and we are delighted to have Carl here with us today. Carl, uh, welcome to Seneca, and thank you so much for hosting us here at Fordham. Thank you so much. It's a real honor to be here on Seneca with you and Jeremy. Thanks, Carl. Can you tell us why does a law professor decide to write a book about politics, macroeconomics, and international relations? Well, the short answer is after getting tenure, you kind of get a little bit tired of writing very narrowly tailored pieces that appeal only to other legal academics. And so I decided I wanted to take a shot at trying to look at some of the big picture questions that were roiling China. Uh, and there's no bigger picture question, probably. Uh, so that's the short answer. Uh, is this something that's been sort of on your mind for, for quite a while? Now? I would say probably about for 10 or 15 years. I certainly felt, even when I was looking at more narrowly specialized legal questions, I was seeing the erosion of certain practices and norms in the Chinese system. And so that led me quite naturally to start thinking about some of the bigger picture political questions that extended past 
past the uh, legal system. Uh, yeah, I mean, the reason that I asked, though, uh, you know, about why, when it is that you started thinking about it is I, I sort of thought that there was kind of a consensus about the moment when the illiberal turn really began. Uh, many of the people that we've spoken to, indeed, probably most of them in the last few years, they would date it to the 2008-2009 time frame, uh, you know, sort of. It was under who around that time uh, that it, we started to see, for example, the crackdowns on human rights lawyers, the really you know vicious crackdowns, uh, the the big serious wave of tightening uh, of of internet censorship. It's you know when like uh, Meng Jianzhu started to talk about the internet as a, a way for hostile foreign forces to amplify negative sentiments and and so forth. Um, why do you see it? You see it as happening earlier. I mean, you did it essentially back to eighty nine. Right? I would say that there are several different crucial. Inflection points. Inflection points. And certainly 1989 is one. I also think 2003 is another important one. I sort of think that uh, after about, you know, the tightening that began to take place with respect to public interest lawyers, really, I think I can see the beginnings of that even as early as 2005, 2006. Interesting. And um, yes, and a, but I think, of course, 1989 is a crucial inflection point precisely because that's the point at which uh, the possibility of deeper political or institutional reform in China is taken off the table. After that point, there are a range of reforms, village election, public interest law, administrative legal reforms. But I think many of them are a story of one step forward, one step back, or one step forward, two steps back, that never fully take off. Uh, so I would say that the the inflection point comes earlier, but of course, different fields experience this at somewhat different points in time. Um, Carl, uh, you know, Kaiser and I often joke about the golden era of Chinese liberalism under Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao. Um, and we both certainly believe that during the 2000s after September 11 and before the Tibet riots in March 2008, China's weak collective leadership presided over a, in some ways, relatively liberal uh, period, whether by design, incompetency or default. It certainly was a time, as far as I'm concerned, when there were some advances in rule of law, uh, in uh, public discussion, uh, in the media, in the public sphere, in civil society. Would you agree with that or not? No, I actually think that's 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 right. I mean, I think there are probably two different things that are taking place. One, the sort of larger secular thing is that uh, the Chinese party authorities, even after nineteen, you know, in the in the reform era, they basically decided they were going to back out of certain areas of social space that they just you know the party wasn't interested in controlling everything and that meant that there was more space in some areas partially because of inattention so low budget indie films or you know some more of the more obscure areas of academic uh, work. They just, it wasn't as, it wasn't the front and center. The party wasn't interested in trying to get into those spaces. And I think roughly at that point that you're talking about, that opened up space for people to begin to do things there. So that's one. And, you know, of course, the other, that also means that in, for example, partially commercialized media, people begin to push the boundaries of what's uh, possible or, or, or able. The other second element is I do think that party authorities during the reform era were interested in addressing a range of abuses uh, in their own system. Party authorities, you know, in the 1990s and early 2000s weren't interested in being, uh, you know, robbed blind. They were, weren't interested in seeing local officials dramatically abuse power. So that prompted at different points in time them to experiment with certain 
types of institutional reforms. Open up village elections to allow citizens, you know, an ability to sort of supervise local village affairs. Implement public interest legal reforms that offer limited channels for folks to challenge or check local abuses. The challenge there, however, is that at each point those little things open up, people start to gravitate towards use, to using them. And so, you know, each village elections open up, people start to, late 1990s, begin to explosively use them. At each stage, party authorities begin to get worried, and they step in to sort of counteract or curtail some of their earlier reforms. So I agree that there was that period of more liberalism at a different period, earlier period in time, but checks emerge in each area that I look at. Sure. Uh, so, I mean, thanks. I mean, I'm glad that we see things that way. And I certainly agree that, yeah, of course, beginning in 1989, the possibilities for, for meaningful political reforms, for political liberalization were pretty much taken off the table. Now, uh, what do you see then as the reason for the – what explains sort of the, the return of the authoritarian revival? If, if we say there was a, a brief respite from it, a, a kind of a, a hiatus from this period that we're talking about, you know, 2001 to 2008 – what brought it back? Right. So I, again, I think you have s- several different things that are taking place. But certainly the sort of the shortest way of describing it is to say that precisely because Chinese authorities took the possibility of deeper institutional reform off the table in the early 90s, at each point in time when they found themselves confronted with new challenges, they had essentially limited choices. They couldn't deepen reform because that would Im- implicitly bump up against that that decision that was taken in the early 90s. Sure. And so they had to make the decision double down on the security apparatus. Another area, you know, rising corruption. So if you don't have uh, you know, independent checks on government action, if you don't have, you know, alternative measures to supervise corruption, by the time you end up in the 1990s, you're seeing the fusion of money and power coming together in very very troubling ways. As that corruption begins to sort of move through the Chinese party system and escalate to higher and higher levels, we emerge in the sort of early 2000s with, you know, essentially independent fiefdoms of particular officials such as Zhou Yongkong, who are able to- petroleum clique, right, right. And then that means that for Xi, when he wants to break that or when he wants to address that, he doesn't have that opportunity to say, I'm going to begin to open up, you know, um, independent judiciary. His, his his choices then are, I'm going to double down. I'm going to rely on what levers I do have. And that includes concentrating power in my own hands. That includes you know cultivating a populist image among, uh, among the, the populace at large and trying to shake up the bureaucracy with a very destructive, uh, you know, very, very, uh, very destabilizing anti-corruption campaign. So I think all of those things, you, you link them back to sort of an earlier point Failure to undertake institutional reform when they had the chance essentially sets things up for having to begin to resort to this tougher, personalized authoritarian regime, you know, decades down the road. Well, we are talking about something that started, I think we both agree, before Xi. Absolutely. So uh, what about for during the Hu and Win period? I mean, sort of the second term of Hu and Win was when we started to see this happen. Absolutely. What, what are some of the factors that gave impetus to that move then? Absolutely. So uh, I, a couple of things. So, I mean, certainly one area that you're familiar with is, you know, media and Weibo and the growth of those. And this, again, was one of those areas that if you'd gone a few 
years earlier back in the early 2000s, their explosive growth. And it was perhaps also sort of a marginal area for the party to take an interest in. But all of a sudden, by the you know end of the Hu Jintao era, you're seeing things such as the uh, Wenzhou train crash. You're seeing things such as the uh, the, uh, the the you know the 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 emergence of uh, social media celebrities with large large followings. That's an example of how this suddenly something that looks like a marginal area starts to become something that party authorities themselves have to really worry about, and that leads the 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 this effort to sort of first exert much tighter control over over or over media, and then ultimately a much tighter decision decision to sort of exercise tighter controls over culture. Similarly, you could tell the story about you know the growth of the security apparatus under Zhou Yongkong. That begins to balloon significantly over that same period of time in which you start to have to rely more and more on the security forces to address the looming stability challenges that the party is worried about. Carl, we've talked already a little bit about the uh, censorship of media and the internet, um, the arrest of rights lawyers, uh, the repression of, of different kinds of dissent. And these are probably the first things many people associate with an authoritarian revival. Uh, but perhaps you could lay out some of the features of this authoritarian revival that your book is about that aren't as obvious. Maybe some things that the media and China analysts haven't focused on. I guess I can I can sort of think of uh, two examples off the hat, and you can tell me which one, if any, you're more interested in. Um, one is sort of the the revival of the sort of ideological focus on Xi Jinping himself, and the other is the China dream or the shift back towards tradition. Uh, are, is one or, one of those more than others? I'd, I'd love to hear about both of them, actually, Carl. Yeah, I'd say you know one of them is is obvious. I think everyone sort of recognizes you know the the sort of incipient personality cult, uh, but the other is maybe not as obvious. So yeah, sure. But, yeah, but so both, let's yeah. let's take the 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 the. the the China dream element to begin with. I mean, and first it helps by way of comparison to sort of think back to the 1970s or the radical period of Chinese Chinese history in which, you know, Chinese, the Chinese Communist Party itself was at the very height of the Cultural Revolution, you know, seeking to sort of wipe out all Chinese tradition in the name of you know, uh, eliminating feudalism. You know, the anti, the criticize uh, Lin Biao, criticize Confucius campaign, which I think was in 75, so 72, actually. Yeah, right. maybe the right. 72. The, um, you know, that was, that was the party itself really taking aim at China's heritage in an effort to, 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 to eradicate it. Um, and then you fast forward to what we're seeing now, which is, you know, Xi Jinping very much pivoting towards embracing a Chinese tradition and this em- embrace of China is sort of casting the party itself in ethno-nationalist terms. And if you think about what's going on, you realize one of the things that's taking place is that Chinese authorities themselves recognize that communism itself as an ideology is no longer something that the people deeply believe in. Party authorities themselves are in some ways burdened by it because, after all, they are the Communist Party, so you can't just immediately say we're, we stand for something else. But there's a slow pivot that Chinese authorities are doing back to China's Chinese tradition, an effort to sort of reground the party in China's own historical heritage. Now, this is important in part because if you think about the reform era itself, uh, the reform era was an era in which Chinese authorities were very much looking towards the outside world. They recognized, you know, China had problems, and they were looking to sort of import things from the outside that might help China address them. Deng Xiaoping's favorite saying was, we need to open the windows even if a few flies 
come in. What's happened now is I think Chinese authorities over the last decade or so have the feeling that by opening those windows, a range of other ideological forces are coming in, whether it's Western liberal issues, democracy, democratic thought, whether it's uh, underground Christian house churches, and they're now beginning to feel that they actually need to close that up. They need some sort of ideological shield that they can deploy against these forces. Of course, there's a deep social issues as well. Many Chinese people themselves are just taking a pride in their own cultural heritage after decades of you know looking to the outside world, and they're trying to stand up and say, what about our own heritage? But it's important also to realize that the party itself is very much seeking to deploy Chinese tradition in a particular way. And the reason why this is important is I think as that begins to roll forward in a stronger and stronger way, it's going to begin to become more and more of a barrier towards looking towards outside influences, precisely because it's going to become politically suspect. So I think this is an example of how that sort of increasingly hardline or increasingly ideological shift is going to begin to pivot China off of the reform era openness and start to create some increasing problems for cultural and uh, you know academic in- interchanges with the outside world. Yeah, we're certainly already starting to see the beginnings of this. But let's let me ask you, I mean, this is a party that in its own telling of its history is grounded in the traditions of the May 4th movement, this cultural iconoclasm. Uh, it you know, was sort of built on smashing the four olds, right? Now, is this pivot that you're talking about done cynically and instrumentally, or do you think that there's sort of an honest emotional commitment to Chinese tradition that, that really kind of infects a lot of people in the senior party leadership? I think that, that that's an excellent question. And I suspect at the, at the senior ranks, I think it's still sort of a, it's a confused question. Because on the one hand, many of these people are themselves children of revolutionary, uh, you know, uh, revolutionary uh, officials. And they grew up on the, the story of the party as a revolutionary force. But the party itself is no longer the party of the 1920s or 30s. They're the they're a ruling party that is now, you know, well into, um, you know, multiple decades uh, of rule. And so in some ways, they their identity is a little bit more similar to, uh, you know, ruling dynasty or or the like. And in fact, if you're looking for an interesting example of that, you really should go to the Fuxing Zhilu, the Road to Revival exhibit, yeah, which is, terrific, that's actually right. the first, Xi Jinping first act when he ta- took uh, office was to take the Politburo Standing Committee to that exhibit. And the depiction that's in that exhibit right now of Chinese history is much different from what existed t- 15 or 20 years ago. Anything else is historical nihilism. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. That's exactly. Right. No, that's, that's fascinating. Okay. Then the other thing that you pointed out is, of course, the sort of incipient personality cult idea. Uh, yeah, I would like to discuss that, uh, especially because I have a bit of a bone to pick with you. I remember us having an argument about this a few years ago about whether there was an incipient personality cult building. I, I'd love to hear Carl's uh, view on this. Sure, sure. The term I always use is whiff of cult of personality because I think it's important. I mean, this is we're still far from you know the 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 the, the excesses of the Maoist era. I mean, yes. so you have to be very careful in how you refer to this. So I'm I'm very careful just to say whiff of a cult of personality, which is to say you know there's much more state media attention devoted to. To, to Xi than to other leaders. There are, you know, if you look at his birthplace, if you look at some of the things that are developing, there is 
people who are beginning to maneuver to sort of use, you know, to, 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 to use his uh, story, to use his image in, in a particular way. So, you know, there are some things that are out there. There are art students who are, you know, they're, they're, they're told uh, to yeah, paint, yeah, paint pictures of, right. you know, if you look at some of the, uh, the Chinese detail from your book. Yeah. yeah. So you've got, you've got some of that stuff out there. And I, I do think that's significantly different if you're sort of comparing back to the Hu Jintao or the Jiang Zemin era that it's worth noting. But oh, absolutely. You, just, you don't want to go over the board and saying it's already Right. Well, Jeremy, I mean, to your point, I will grant you that that whiff is is a, a little the more... The whiff is, is fairly strong. ...odorous. Mm. <laughs> it's getting stronger. It's, it's getting yeah, stinky. Absolutely. <laughs> right. So consider that bone picked. Um, okay. Yes. It's picked clean. Uh, Carl, the central argument to your book uh, is that China's authoritarian revival will thwart China's rise. Um, can we get you to explain what you mean by its rise, exactly. I mean, do you mean its economic growth, its relative position in power geopolitically? Do you mean something more nebulous, like its own greatness as a society or, or as a polity? What, what do you mean by rise? So I would that's, – that's a very good question. I would say that you know, if we're thinking about the reform era itself, the four decades what we think of as sort of modern Chinese history where China has sort of emerged – both on the world stage, but just domestically at, ho- at home as a prosperous, relatively stable society, that's been founded on a certain set of political assumptions, the partially institutionalized political norms of the late 1970s, early 1980s. And what I'm saying is I'm seeing those, like it's almost like a Jenga set. I'm seeing those things begin to get pulled out underneath. And that's what worries me, is that once you, I, I can't see how you start to remove those those things without starting to create increasingly large problems as you go along. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I, I was I, I was talked. I was uh, on a radio program just yesterday, uh, PRI's The World, and I was asked about this. I didn't have the the presence of mind to come up with Jenga set, but what I did say, and I think you'd probably agree, is that these norms that you're talking about, these semi institutionalized, and, and that's a very good way to describe them. Norms and and those would be like politics is no longer a blood sport. You don't imprison or or kill uh, the people who you remove from power anymore. That you know you have the the seven up eight down rule, which is the only one that now kind of vestigially survives. And then of course the two year term limits. These things were uh, important to China's political authorities' ability to uh, well f- to to endure to I mean to be more you know durable and to be more flexible. And it, it, it sort of took the edge off it off its authoritarianism. I mean, I, I described it as, you know, people could see it as authoritarianism light. It was a dictatorship, but it wasn't quite that dictatorial, right? Absolutely. I totally and this changes agree. now. I totally agree. Right. I mean, okay. if, and, and I think it really, it helps to sort of remember where these things came from. I mean, in the late 1970s and early 1980s, Chinese leaders themselves, who had been personally scarred by the excesses of the Maoist era, implemented these things not because they knew what could happen if your political system lacked these. They were thinking back to an earlier era in the 50s and 60s and early 70s in which politics was blood sport, in which, you know, uh, you know, the one-man rule, cult of personality, uh, you know, the purges uh, regularly roiled the bureaucracy. The crucial question was who was on Mao's good side and who wasn't. And that had a whole range of ramifications. And so when you start to look at these things happening now without going overboard and saying, oh, we're already Back, you know, we're, we're back in like the 1960s and 1970s. We're not there yet. But you really have to start asking the question of once these rules and norms start getting reversed, 
what else could get reversed? How much further could the system go backwards? And you have to start thinking about it in that, that context. Excellent. That, yeah, that, that makes a, a lot of sense uh, to me. Um, one of the things I'd like to ask about is the anti-corruption campaign, this, this extremely uh, persistent and sweeping uh, movement to get rid of corrupt officials that she has pursued so pitilessly since he took office. How do you see that fitting into the uh, authoritarian revival? Right. So I think that there are multiple things going on with the anti-corruption campaign. First, I mean, some people say, well, this is only about getting rid of his political rivals. I don't think that's that's the case. Yeah, I think have 200,000. No, exactly. Rivals. I think there is an element of it, which is, you know, she actually believes in the idea of, you know, making the party a ruling force within Chinese society and something that people can believe in. And you have to at least suppress the manifestations of corruption in order to retain that sort of uh, legitimacy. So I think there is an element about it. Of course, you know, you're maybe selectively going after who, but you, this is, there is an element about, you know, I'm trying to address corruption. The other one, of course, is taking out some of your core political rivals or people who you think are, are problematic. There is also another deeper level to it as well, which is, I think if you want to remodel the bureaucracy, if you want to remodel the state, you do need a level of insecurity. I think it actually helps. You, it makes people much more attuned to doing what you want. This, I'm talking in a tactical sense, not in a moral or normative sense. So I think that the anti-corruption campaign does also play an important role in making people worried. And when people are worried, they may be more pliable, more willing to do what you're, you're, you're bidding, and certainly more attuned to sort of paying attention to what kind of signals you're sending down in a political sense. So I do think that that anti-corruption campaign, there's an element of it, which is also linked to his effort to kind of, you know, stamp the bureaucracy with his, you know, I'm, I'm in charge. Well, rare indeed is the entirely clean cadre. I mean, right. I've compared it recently to uh, if you look at the pool of Hollywood producers, and and do you think there are many that are, are that don't have a Me Too kind right. of a, you know crime on their hands? I mean, of course, most right. of them do. There's something that 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 she and, and the CCID would be able to use against you if they desired. Everybody has got everyone's something. got something. Yep. Right, right, right. Um, of course, we we have to talk about uh, you know this announcement maybe more explicitly. Um, one of the things that's been surprising to me is that people have found it surprising when in fact everyone. As soon as this was coming. That's, I completely agree. I mean, I, I sort of, I'm interested. I mean, your listenership here is probably different from sort of ordinary, uh, you know, ordinary non-specialists. Well, you of all people wouldn't find it surprising. I mean, this is sort of the inevitable conclusion of your book. I mean, yeah, right. this slots so neatly in that it just sort of says, I mean, I think you're going to sell more copies. This is like May, or Jeremy, remember when we interviewed May? I mean, her book had come out like, uh, you know, on, on the one-child policy. Just around like, when the one-child policy was loosened, yeah. Oh, right. <laughs> Did you suspect collusion? <laughs> <laughs> May, um, if you're listening, <laughs> we're watching you. <laughs> no, I mean Carl, May, all. I mean, there's like this conspiracy now. I think that you know to, to sell books. It's, it's, it's it's, you guys know. are geniuses. <laughs> no, but I, I agree that I mean, sort of some of the signs. You know, I, I, I find you know I felt certainly while some of the trajectory was there. I mean, I think even as on this specific announcement, I felt that even in, in the fall, when you looked at the you know failure to designate a clear political successor, when you saw Xi Jinping Sisiang, Xi Jinping thought go into the constitution or the party charter, you, you could definitely sense that right. there were sick, clear signals being sent. I've, I've been thinking about well, why is it now that this is such a, such a tension? And I think one of the reasons is for non-specialists who don't focus on China, they find it difficult to understand, well, Xi Jinping thought, what does that mean? But 
the constitutional removal of a two-term limit for an American, that's something you could immediately say, oh, well, that's a big thing. They're drawing analogies to their own system, which are, it's quite different. But I think that's why people can immediately think about what this is. It's no surprise that it's surprising to the non-specialists, but but it's surprising to so many specialists. But on on the other hand, I mean, I I think there are not a few Chinese people that I've talked to who, if not surprised, were, I mean, maybe um, there's a a post on chinachange.org by uh, the writer Mo Zhishu, and he says, uh, let me see if I can find it. The basic assumption about China's politics and economy, about the future of Xi Jinping and about the prospects of reform have been punctured by this Mm. development. There are now no immediate prospects for change. This is why what was such an unsurprising announcement has led to such universal universal shock and lamentation, which I I, I don't know. Does that make sense to you, Carl? I mean, he's essentially saying it's not surprising, but the fact that this is – a marker of some kind is why people are shocked. Right. And I have heard, I've heard it at least one or two Chinese students sort of express that to me as well, which is along the lines of, you know, we, we knew our system, our system's authoritarian. I mean, they're, they're deep historical ties. But what we didn't have was an emperor. I mean, we thought in 19, 1911, you know, we sort of moved away from an imperial tradition. And to find that, well, maybe we're closer to that than we thought, that was what was really shocking to, to him. And so I thought that was an interesting perspective that maybe I could understand the, the sort of level of surprise or, or why this particular thing hits people in a different way. There has, of course, been a great deal of discussion recently in the United States over engagement with China. Many people, it seems to have almost become the conventional wisdom that we were deluded when we thought engagement uh, would fundamentally change anything in China. Uh, Sure, there were some people who might be accused of being ridiculously naive, uh, but is this something of a a straw man? I mean, I'm conflicted when I think about this question of of engagement or not, because Part of it, I keep asking myself, well, what what would you have expected instead? I mean, so what you're essentially asking is you're trying to figure out, you know, was it was engagement a failure or? Um... Yeah, I guess. I, I mean, I guess the question is this: is that a lot of China analysts and business people who were great boosters of American engagement with China have, over the last few years, soured on it. And could could the U.S., uh, could American companies and the American government have done anything different? Would not engaging have made things different? Right. I mean, I think it's, it's hard to ask those questions in retrospect. I mean, the other thing that I think of is that, honestly, if you think back to the 90s and the period that you were talking about in the 2000s, there were actually a range of Chinese people who were pushing, including within the state themselves, who were pushing reform, who were pushing changes and, and the like. And I don't think that those folks were, it, it wasn't like they were simply, you know, doing this as a convenient cover for something else. I think I think China itself has experienced a domestic shift in some ways that the United States is also experiencing its own domestic shifts to sort of to, to so kind of to, to reach back now and sort of be able to and try to say, well, it was clear at that point, it should have been clear at that point that engagement was a failure because the Chinese Communist Party, had, there was no hope in it. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not sold on that because right, I think, of course. I think the party itself, I think China itself, you know, th- th- there, there was, there were lots of internal tensions as to which direction should China should go. And it turns out to have gone a different direction than many of us would have hoped. And Jeremy, you asked about whether it was a straw, it's a straw man claim to say that proponents of, of engagement really thought that they were going to, you know, become like us. Nobody thought that. Nobody was, nobody may, I mean, there, there may have been just a tiny number, but most people, 
No, they thought that it was going to, you know, begin a process of nudging China in in a direction of, you know, to become a more open, more more deliberative, at least more like participatory society. I mean, it wasn't going to become a full fledged democracy. Nobody thought that. I mean, no reasonable. I, I don't know. I, that I, no reasonable person or no uh, informed person, perhaps. But I think, I mean, if you look at certainly, uh, you know, the p- political rhetoric um, on this side of the Pacific, I, I don't think nobody thought that. I think a lot of people thought that. I think you still have a lot of people thinking that if if only they'd stop censoring the internet, then you know, suddenly everything would be groovy and liberal in China, even now. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. No, you, you do. You do have those people. But yeah, and then the other point is, is I mean. Why decide that, that we've? I mean, why give up? I mean, I think any any fair minded observer who would look back to the the early days of that that debate over engagement, and then who would look at China, maybe you know before last Sunday anyway, could are could point to many areas where there have been improvements. I mean, certainly in 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 personal, not political, but sort of personal liberties and economic liberties. Of course, I mean. Uh, reform broadly defined, absolutely. There have been lots and lots of, of, of positive changes. I mean, is the state of rule of law better than it was in 1978? Absolutely it is. I mean, is uh, – yeah, anyway. I mean, I do think one of the other points that's important to underline because it, you definitely sense the mood turning negative in the states as well. Yeah. You, you, you worry about this narrative becoming one where – China is the problem, you know. It, it, China writ broadly, not focusing simply on the Chinese Communist Party, not focusing s- simply on, uh, you know, governmental actions. But I do worry that one of the, th- you know, artifacts of some of this discussion is that somehow everything in China and everyone in China gets painted with a very broad, broad brush. Are, are you I think worried that, would- that you're going to be used as a club? To, to to beat the the sort of China threat drum. I mean, you know, that's I'm sure different people are going to read my book in different ways. But I, you know, if it's I, I wrote it pretty carefully. I think that there. You did. You I did. Think, I have to. Yeah, I, absolutely. Say I think there is. I mean, this that you know, there are a lot of people in China who are worried about the direction that China itself is going, not because they're thinking about the United States, but they're thinking about themselves and they're thinking about their own families and they're thinking about their own history. And I think it's really important to recognize that for people in the United States who are also concerned about you know Chinese influence uh, abroad and military stuff but it is important to realize that there is a big difference between the Chinese state and you know vast mass of Chinese people just as there is a difference between the Trump administration and a wide range of Americans and whether they approve of what the you know the US government is doing uh, Carl I want to go back to this idea that you talked about about this sort of conservatism reflecting a deeper shift by which I think you met the ideological and also the cultural emphasis on indigenous you know, Chinese cultural roots that we talked about, national pride. Um, you don't really come down on which is the cause and which the effect. Uh, help me think, talk through your thinking on that question. You're talking sort of in particular, you're definitely right that I mentioned in terms of the ideological shift, you know, that the, the I'm talking there specifically, the book focuses more on like the party's effort to sort of deploy culture in a particular ways. So yes, but let me just, you know, it, let me just mention that there are two things going on here. There's what the party is doing, and there's also just what's welling up with exactly society what I'm itself. Exactly, like which is the cause and which is the I, effect. It's hard to say. I think both of them go on at the same time. I think. I think on the one hand, you're getting just this broad interest. So Chinese people, just like people anywhere else in the world, are interested in their own culture and history. There is this feeling that Chinese society has changed, and shouldn't we have to? Shouldn't we take more of an interest in our own cultural roots? Why should our children be sort of spending ridiculous amount of time memorizing English vocabulary words for an exam, which may or may not have, you know, they may or may not go abroad? So there, that's leading to questions about 
what's the correct thing to have in our – that's going on in society at large. At the same time as that's happening, which I view as just sort of a natural development that happens in every society, uh, in particular in a society where the change is as dramatic as in China, party authorities themselves are thinking about this in, a, in, in their own interests. Part of it is they want to get ahead of changes that are happening. And part of it is I do think that they have this interest in creating a an ideological narrative which is useful for their own ends. And so when you're saying there's a, there's a shift in society, there's also a shift in the state, in the party state, and, and those two things are happening at the same time. And they play into one another very exactly, clearly. Exactly, yeah, right. Yeah, no, Certainly absolutely. people who are sort of, you know, the, 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 the noted Confucian scholar or the, or the, or the you know, popular, popular Buddhist figure, uh, you know, they're getting many more invitations to the party and more opportunities are opening up for them. The reason I asked that question is precisely because I'm also conflicted on I don't right. know. I mean, it's hard to tweeze apart. Thanks. That's great. Carl, you asked the reader to put uh, themselves in Xi Jinping's shoes and to imagine the very limited choices to address some of the deep economic and social challenges that China now faces. And you suggest that the politicized anti-corruption drive, the destruction of institutionalized norms around power transfer factions, centralization of power, the stoking of national and ethnic pride, populism, these things are all necessary toward the realization of Xi's vision for China. It's a very good feature of your book that you have this kind of empathy. Can you channel, channel Xi Jinping here and explain a bit what the world looks like through his eyes? Yeah, I would second that about the empathy. That was, a, I mean, when I, I say you were careful, yeah, you not just careful, but you, I, I think, Continuously through this book, you you make that effort to uh, see what 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 it looks like through Jesus. And that that I don't find that enough in writing on China. So I think you you need that needs to be emphasized as why I really really enjoyed this book. Well, you're very nice. Thank you. I mean, I, when I, when I'm doing that, it's, it's not necessarily out of a normative agreement, but I think it's important to try to see things from the way. If if you're a Chinese party official, particularly somebody in Xi Jinping's shoes, the way you're looking at the world and, and the and the way you know I sort of think of it is you know you're the son of a of you know deeply inculcated in the in the in the Chinese party itself you're rising up in a system that's sort of frac in the, as in like the late Hu Jintao era you're rising up in a system in which uh you know it's 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 uh there 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 factions uh, the system itself feels fossilized there's lots of corruption in the system you you know you view yourself you view the party as having a historical mandate to sort of lead China in a particular direction you find yourself sort of beset by political enemies and you're sort of thinking about how do you actually do anything? How do you make stuff happen? And I think that gives you an insight into sort of, you know, the takedown of Bo Xilai, I think gives you an insight into sort of the strategic efforts to sort of begin to take out your rivals and accrete power in yourself. Of course, each step along that process as you do that means you make more enemies. Uh, it also means that as those challenges come up within society itself, as you, you start to face the pushback on social media, as you worry about what those that might mean for the ability of your lower party cadres to implement your your vision, you start to feel that you know social media is the problem. You need to expand your censorship, uh, you know, controls in order to guide that. You look at the United States. You sort of see the, the you know the, the the potential challenges to China faces, uh, and you desire to cleanse the military. You want to sort of make it you know the military reform, the restructuring of the military districts. All of that kind of makes sense when you sort of think of what are actually the options that were open to to, to Xi, and particularly if you're determined not to undertake 
you know, liberal democratic rule, particularly if you look at Russia as a failed example of you know, the fall of the Soviet Union as something you don't want to repeat, you start to have a much more reduced – I mean, the, the choices that he make sort of make logical sense from that position. Yeah, I, I think those are really excellent characterization of it. Let me ask just one follow-on question, which is uh, to what – extent does his perception of the outside environment, you mentioned Russia, of the outside uh, environment play into this? I mean, so she comes to power uh, during essentially the height of the Arab Spring. Uh, he has these recent color revolutions behind him. He uh, he looks out his window and what does he see from the, 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 the Arab Spring? He sees the smoldering wreckage. I mean, not, these are not excellent examples of the exercise of, of global influence. Absolutely, and, or nor of liberal democratic reform. I think if you're Xi Jinping and you're sort of, you know, not just looking at that, but you're looking at 1989, you're looking at the, uh, you're looking at what happened in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union, uh, I think you you look at the, the lessons they draw from looking at those experiences is, you know, very different from the ones that, are, that you know, sort of American liberals would draw about, you know, the natural advance of, of, of liberalism. Party authorities such as she would look at that and be like, that's exactly the reason why we don't want to walk down that path, precisely because not only would it potentially mean the end of the Communist Party, but they, some of them, uh, say, you know, it also instability within China itself. And what about the populist and nationalist uprisings of 2016? Um, how does he look out at, at the state of Western democracy, you know, in the time of Brexit and Trump? I think it's the same, same thing. I think you sort of look, you sort of, you know, the interest. I mean, you you guys do a lot of work on media, and I think you know probably you probably know better than I. I mean, I would suspect you know when when uh, you start having Facebook and and Twitter starting to be worried about the spread of fake news, I think probably there are some within the Chinese propaganda apparatus who patting are, themselves on the back. Right. They say, well, look, we we avoided that. I mean, again, I don't necessarily agree with that, but I that's the way I'm sure they're thinking about it. Right. I wish we didn't have to always caveat that. I mean, because, you know, we've checked our own values at the, the door and we're not abdicating them. We're just exercising cognitive empathy here, right? So that's great. Excellent. Excellent. Um, you challenged this this notion of, of democratic development theory, modernization theory, uh, whatever it's called these days, uh, this idea that an authoritarian state can develop economically, you know, using a sort of mercantilist model or what have you. Uh, but then it reaches some level of per capita GDP magically and this middle class uh, reaches a critical mass. It suddenly, you know, creates an irrepressible democratic aspiration as it has property it wants to defend or whatever. And voila, you have Taiwan, you have South Korea. Uh, why do you believe this idea to be flawed when it comes to China? Uh, so, uh, so right, you, you summarized it perfectly, which is that there is a narrative out there that somehow economic development magically at some point when you hit a particular level of economic development, just sort of institutional and democratic change just somehow happens. Uh, and for me, I actually think it requires something deeper. I look at the examples of Taiwan and South Korea, and I think I see there, many people focus on sort of what happened in the late 1980s, the lifting of martial law in Taiwan uh, and the like. And they say, well, that's perfect example. And I, my story that I tell about Taiwan and South Korea is a different one. I, I, I say that sort of state and society itself at a much earlier stage, I point to the 1970s as a, as a, as a key example, well before the actual lifting of martial law or the, you know, the, the dramatic changes in South Korea. I, I, my argument is that in both of those countries at a much earlier period, there was a, a uh, a, a state society engagement, a sort of pre-reform shifts that started to take place uh, that 
opposition activists started to go into local legislatures uh, and, and the like. And that eventually began to create the preconditions by which, you know, sort of when the change eventually happened, you started to see this, you know, opening and stability in both countries. I contrast that with China because I think one of the key things over the 90s and early 2000s is while there may have been some of those same possibilities in China at that period, in some ways, China's authority, China, the, the decision of Chinese party authorities to basically, you know, foreclose uh, that foreclose that and pull those seeds you know if you're taking the monks you know the sort of you know you, you if the person who sort of pulls the seeds out of the out of the hillside and never allows them to flourish is he surprised that you have a barren landscape you know later on no i mean that's kind of what happened you if you think to shu jiong for example he was in the haidian uh, you know dis- local uh, people's congress people's, as of yeah. 2003 you could have said you could have imagined an alternative future for china where just slow again it would have been a long time but it could have gone in a different, different direction it didn't happen and so now it looks to me like China's going in a different way. Carl, uh, the, it's interesting that in a book that is quite brief, you devote a whole chapter to religion. The chapter is ostensibly about religion and ideology, but it ends up being mainly about religion. Can you explain why you thought that this feature of China's authoritarian shift merited that much space? Well, I thought that was going to get your attention, Jeremy. <laughs> so that's an interesting question. And then I think the, I think the answer is that, you know, I felt like I, I needed to you know, many people who work on the issues that I am, we focus on, you know, institutions, you focus on politics, you focus on law, you focus on, you know, what, what the most recent, you know, issue, document issue from the, you know, the, the Politburo is. Naturally, that's important if what you're trying to understand is right now, which is to say, you know, what's going on with the Chinese party apparatus. But I think even beyond what we're looking at right now, there's a deeper set of questions about the future. And that, that requires looking at society as well the sort of the interaction between state and society and where that's leading in China. And, you know, religion or belief, that's, that is something that sort of guides many people's lives. It's a hugely important uh, force in our own society and in, in many others as well. And so I see shifts that are taking place in China itself. And I felt I needed to somehow be able to describe that or categorize it and, and fit it into an overall narrative. Yeah, that's a f- fair enough point. Jeremy, do you want to push back I, anymore on that? Well, I, I just, uh, maybe you could, um, you know, talk a little bit specifically about, you know, how you see the changes ah, in yes. uh, religious practice and, and, and of course, the management of, of religion. And, you know, w- what about religion is help, helps us to illuminate possible futures of China. Because I'm sort of of two minds on this. I think that even in a pretty strict authoritarian, uh, the kind of authoritarian state that we're seeing develop, uh, they might actually find a place for a a neutered, but, you know, a, a tamed religion. But they seem to be giving actually a lot of encouragement to it. Absolutely. And I, so here's, there, there, I have a couple of thoughts. I mean, sort of the, the book lays some of these out in more detail. But I think there are, there are at least two important things or important concepts to think about with respect to religion that I, I think also sort of play in other areas as well. And I'll, I'll start first with the what I think of as the how this plays into the ideological pivot that's 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 taking place. So one way to think of the reform era, or to think of the early reform era, was the Chinese part, Communist Party decided it was going to back out of people's lives. If you, if you think about the Maoist era, there was this effort to actually eradicate uh, you know, religion, I mean, wipe it out totally from that. By the reform, when you enter the reform era, late 70s, early 80s, the party basically says, we're going to back out and we're going to sort of treat all 
belief systems. Just as long as you don't organize and come after us, uh, you know, we're still going to have our political structures, but we're taking less of an interest. And it's sort of a uniform treat all, you know, Buddhism, Islam, Christianity. It's 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 almost like an agnostic towards all of them. We just don't want you to interfere with our, our politics. And and that, I think, is given the space for, you know, the, it's the, given the space to the reemergence under a, of course, it's a patriotic uh, there's the patriotic churches, uh, the patriotic religions structures under which has set the boundaries of what's permitted. So I'm not portraying it as freedom, but it was more space than what existed earlier, and it was uniform. The one of the interesting thing that's taking place now is as the party pivots back to a more closed definition of what it means to be Chinese, it's pivoting back to things it thinks are more approved: Buddhism, Confucianism, and the like. That's leading them to take. You know, I think it's leading a shift where certain belief structures are now beginning to be regarded as not appropriate, as opposed to an earlier stage where, so I think, you know, Islam and Christianity are coming under much more pressure. And so this is a shift where, you know, the fissures within Chinese society, I think, start to become greater, where, you know, some people not start to now be regarded as more problematic. And if you look on social media and start looking at some of the talk about Muslims, and it's not now just in, you know, state authorities still are adhering to this official discourse of... Yeah, I think they're they're doing a pretty admirable job of fighting that that popular, you know, anti-Islam. Exactly. But I think there's a shift where you're starting to see some of this come out. And so th- this is a shift that's taking place. Yeah, I worry about that. And I think much. that could be a real problem. If you look at the discussions, re- review, I mean, Hong Kong's a different situation, but this, this, the shift that's taking place is ideologically, there's a more closed narrative of what it means to be Chinese. And the people who fit less well into that narrative start to become looked at in a different way. And that is something I think really worth paying attention to in the religious area, but el- else in other areas as well. No question. Uh, one potential danger that you raise in your book, which I found to be really interesting, really compelling, and also really worrisome, uh, is how the ladder to success, the, the the very thing that allows the Chinese state to claim to be meritocratic, uh, and that once at least allowed for some genuine social mobility, uh, is now it's, that ladder is being pulled up. Uh, it's under threat. You you talk about especially the institution of the Gaokao, the all important. Uh, college entry exam and how it's not working as it once did. Uh, I thought that was just a fabulous chapter. Uh, can you can you elaborate a little bit on this? Sure. I mean, I uh, you know I, I can talk specifically about the Gaokao. I can try to tie it into some broader themes as well. Um, regardless of what you think of the Chinese Communist Party, I mean the the reform era saw opportunities open up for a wide range of people. If you came of age in the early 1980s, uh, you know you you had a lot more opportunities. You know maybe you were one of the elite. Who happened to, uh, you know, get into the reopened college and reopened universities, and that just, you know, if you came of age at that period of time, if you were part of that generation that entered college in 1978, the future was just limitless in terms of possibility. if even at a lower socioeconomic rank, if you were one of the early generation of migrants who happened to sort of move from rural area to a more urban area. You also had a lot of new economic opportunities that open up to you, even if you didn't happen to have, you know, the, the you know, fantastic education. One of the shifts which is taking place now is that those, as you mentioned, those routes to success are closing down. 
Some of it is there's complex secular changes that are taking place. You know, once the massive expansion of college education means there's a devaluation in the value of the degrees, the uh, increasing gap between rich and poor means people in, in urban areas have much better, more opportunities to sort of give their children, you know, uh, elite uh, education that puts you know rural children at a disadvantage, and that's not only just at sort of that that level of the people at the top, but even migrants themselves. If you now want to move from a rural area to an urban area, what's your chance of ever buying a house in 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 an you know in a, in, a, in a city like Beijing or Shanghai? What's your chance of surmounting those hukou barriers in order to get your your children in, into a school? And so I think it's really important to also recognize that. This is this is also a gap that's opening up within just China's society between the haves and the have-nots, uh, and we think of China as this authoritarian state where you know they've got a tight, tight control on things. But there's a lot of latent grievances, and these aren't all just grievances that are directed at the Chinese Communist Party. It's a lot of lot of resentment that's building up, building up between you've got that and I don't have that, and my children are never going to have that opportunity. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, for for readers, I mean, this for this chapter alone, I think this this book is is worth going out and buying. Absolutely. <laughs> um, Carl, is there any force at all, by your reckoning, any force in Chinese society that could possibly nudge the country off the authoritarian path you describe? I mean, this is this is a tricky question because you know I, people often ask this. One, some people ask, well, is there any force in the Chinese Communist Party that might steer you know? You know, she in a different direction. There's, I don't no. see any. any <laughs> not, I don't see any other top. Yet. No, I don't. I see don't any. think we're asking about. You know, no. I mean, the only the, my my. I guess if I if you have to you know, always want to give out some sort of hope in the end of the day. Yeah, I please mean, give us some hope, you know, please. My, my hope, I know. <laughs> I mean, you know, you, you hope that you know. At the end of the day, within the party and in society, I mean, there there are you know. The, People are concerned about the future of China independently of the party itself. And the hope is that if people see the risks that are building, people are interested in taking the country in a different direction. And so, you know, maybe at some point if people recognize the risks that are building, you know, this will start to lead question to lead people to say, well, this doesn't make sense for China. It doesn't, it's not because of, you know, whatever the West says or whatever, you know, it's really a question of us and our country and where do we want to go? And so I think that's the operative question that hopefully people within various party conferences are having and hopefully, you know, Chinese citizens themselves. I mean, because ultimately at the end of the day, the decision about what's going to happen, it's going to be made by Chinese Chinese people themselves, government officials and, and citizens. And uh and 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 you hope that, that that choice is a good one for the for the for the people. Unfortunately there's this perverse feedback loop that's not going to work uh, in favor of those people who you hope exist and who I also hope exist. But uh, what really worries me now is that, especially with this latest move, but really the whole authoritarian drift has hardened the China threat narrative, has really magnified, amplified the China threat narrative. And it is, of course, directly related to to what Beijing's doing. Uh, but, but, you know, to, my point is, when Christopher Wray talks about a whole of government, not a whole of government, but a whole of society threat from China, when we start seeing, you know, people just freaking out about, you know, Confucius Institutes, just, uh, I mean, I, I happen to think there are a lot of other bigger threats to the fabric of American society. And one of them, you know, the biggest threats to, to civic fabric really is is this profiling, this uh, anti-Chinese bigotry that is certain to, to arise uh, coming off of this. You know, this is a country that, uh, where where a lot of turban Sikhs were were beaten, thinking they were Muslims after not just after September 11th, but you know many times since. Uh, so 
this is this is a, a serious problem. And again, I mean, I, I asked you earlier whether you worry that this is your book and, and books like it will be used. And I think you were very careful. But uh, what, what are you going to say when, as you invariably will be, you are called to testify uh, before a congressional com- committee? And uh, what, what are you going to uh, to say to this question. Excellent. So, and then, and I, I don't know that I'd ever be called to testify, but I, here's here's one way of thinking about the problem that I think is helpful. Um, you know, we're not the United States itself is exper- experiencing an erosion its own in its own political institutions. In the United States, what we're seeing is bottom up populist movements that are eroding our institutions of government and actually leading towards a swing back towards nativism and, um, and, 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 and precisely all those problems that you highlighted. There's a similar shift in China. That's the one that I'm – my book is about, about, the, about the Chinese shift. Um, but in both countries, I think that there is this tendency when your systems start to erode and when individual leaders might seek to sort of emerge and sort of m- manipulate that very – cheap nationalism or that sense of rally around our group, rally around, you know, our flag. flag. That, I mean, that's going on in both countries. And I think one thing that helps to realize is that for people who are seriously interested in these issues, uh, I think you have to perceive them as problems in both countries, both, you know, both, you want, you want to resist that. And so my hope would be that the people in you know, again, there are reasonable people in China who realize what's taking place. The reasonable people in the United States who realize what's taking place. The processes in each country is different because China, it's a one-party authoritarian system and you're having a top-down erosion. In the United States, it's a more open democratic system, but, you know, there's bottom-up populist erosion. And, you know, hopefully you, you sort of realize that there's some similarities in what's taking place. So you hopefully both systems, you, you resist that urge to other and say that the problems are all because of them, when in reality, some of the problems are internal. I was talking to a, another uh, China area person who's also bicultural, like I, I fancy myself to be, and we were talking about how just sad and d- d- profoundly disappointed we are in both of the societies that we're a part of. It's it's really, it's 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 enervating, but I mean, yeah, it's depressing as all. Absolutely. All. And so, you know, when people ask, I say one, one, one of the crucial things is, you know, in the United States, I think we have to adhere to our own, you know, have to, we have to really work to uphold our own, you know, liberal democratic ideals. Absolutely. And, and if our open liberal democratic and pluralist society can't deal yeah. with, you know, the, these clumsy ham-fisted uh, like, uh, influence operations from China, then we just, I mean, what the hell are we even fighting right. for? And I note, note that I think, Kaiser, now you're living in North Carolina? Yeah, well, not such a bad place, though. Yeah. I live in a really a little blue uh, yeah. island in that otherwise purplish red state. That's great. Yeah. Well, then, uh, yeah, good. But, yeah, fighting the good fight. Carl, um, I mean, you try to give us a little bit of hope, but I mean, even the title of your book suggests that you're not very confident in something changing China's no. current authoritarian tendencies. So where, th- where do things go from here? Your last chapter discusses prospects. Can you give us a preview of your view of uh, the future? I'm just worried. I mean, I, I, I try to avoid any sort of clear, I mean, I, I, I just think that the trend lines all look not good, look look bad. Uh, and I, you know, I really wish I could say that I, you know, sort of see, I can hold out those, you know, hopes on the edge, on the edges. But in reality, I just really worry that these types of shifts within the political system lead to building problems within institutions that lead to an erosion of technocratic capacities. And then I really worry at some point that some of those latent social issues start to break forth. And I in in a system where you know political norms remain highly uncertain, I think 
that's the situation where things can start to spin in a whole range of distressing uh, ways. Carl Minster, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about this incredibly timely and important book. Uh, I have to say, it's depressing, but it's really encouraging to know that there are people who are treating this uh, so thoughtfully and uh, you know, really so intelligently. So we look forward to having you back on, and I actually look forward to exploring this topic again with you in Washington, D.C. We are going to be sharing a panel at AAS. Uh, before we uh, pack up here, uh, let's make some recommendations, and before we do that, I do want to remind our listeners that the Seneca Podcast is produced in partnership with SupChina. Subscribe to our email newsletter, or better yet, sign up for our SupChina Access Program and get all sorts of goodies uh, from us, including early commercial-free versions of this very podcast. So follow us on Twitter and at Facebook at at SupChina News, and of course, leave us a positive review on the iTunes Store. Uh, now on to recommendations. Jeremy, kick us off. Um, I, I've, I was trying to think of one before the show, and uh, um, Carl's mention of the uh, criticized Lin Biao and Confucius campaign <laughs> made me think that, you know, it's worth reading uh, the document. I think the, the, the first mention of it was an article in the Peking Review uh, in 1974, and I managed to track it down. Marxists.org has a copy, uh, an English copy of it, a uh, translation. Uh, of this article, which is just, uh, uh, you know, on the one hand, uh, a way of realizing how different Xi Jinping is from Mao and how, you know, whatever you think about it, it's not Mao 2.0. It's a, it's a completely different beast. So, yeah. Uh, I think Bill Bishop in his newsletter today called him Maukiavelli. <laughs> Maukiavelli. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, not my word, but <laughs> hats off to him for being clever, though. Carl, what do you have for us? You know, I, I'm if just carrying up with uh, Jeremy's uh, theme. I mean, I can think of a couple people who have also treated this similar subject in in recent books, and you know, their 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 views are a little bit different from mine, and so it might be interesting to read them for another take on the issue. And of course, one is uh, David Shambaugh, who. Who had a uh, also came out relatively recently with a book, uh, China's Future, and there's another one that came out recently too. Again, not not the same take as mine, but Stein Ringen, uh, the perfect dictatorship, right? And then <laughs> and again, I, I don't agree with it, but uh, he, he, that's the, the, the if you're looking for a different view, uh, and then um, I get told. It's not like I totally disagree, but the, I, I'm not his conclusions and, and some of the phrasing. It's not exactly um, the uh, and then of course another author who's written extensively on some of these trends is uh, uh, Pei, who has uh, particularly focused on uh, I think his earlier book on trap tr- transition, and then I think he has a new book on crony capitalism that I, I also I think really help understand some of the pressures that were building that help you know understand why Xi Jinping went the direction that he did, particularly with the anti corruption campaign. Uh, it's really no no I mean it's worth noting how you part company pretty pretty sharply from both Minsin Pei and from uh, and from Steinringen. But very gentlemanly of you to recommend their books. <laughs> yes, what? very very much. Although you don't want to just read me. I that would that would be boring. It's more fun to have people with different views. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I am going to recommend a, a, a book review by David Brophy, who is an Australia-based Xinjiang scholar. Uh, he reviewed Clive Hamilton's controversial book, Silent Invasion, yeah. Chinese Invasion of Australia. Uh, it's in the Australian Book Review. Uh, the perspective that he brings to this is really highly applicable to the situation here in the U.S. I, I think that it's fair to say that New Zealand is different than Australia. Anne-Marie Brady has done a lot of work on that, and I'm, uh, I think it's very much worth checking out. And, and you know, 
remembering that that New Zealand is a special situation. Uh, but I cannot recommend David Brophy's uh, review highly enough. It, it's it's it really lays out very very plainly everything that worries me profoundly about how uh, liberal Western democracies stand to really. Uh, see their own values deeply eroded in trying to protect against what amounts to a fairly inconsequential threat. Uh, it, this is worse in many ways than our overreaction to Islamic fundamentalism or Islamic terrorism. Uh, this is this is, I mean, it's 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 genuinely pretty frightening to me. Of course, personally, uh, being somebody who looks like the enemy now. <laughs> Jeremy, man, thanks. It was really fun having, uh, having been in New York with you these last few days. Yeah, sorry I couldn't be there in person. Carl, thank you so much, and congratulations on, on what is really unreservedly an excellent book. Thank you, guys. Thanks both, both to Kaiser and to Jeremy. It's been a pleasure being on Seneca. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash SubChina News and follow us on Twitter at, at SubChina News. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. Take care.